One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen Murph and Ken all here. Hello there, Owen. Hi, fellas. I'm good, I'm good. Just because you're paranoid, though, doesn't mean they're not out to catch you, as they say, Ken. Joe's Mourinho getting hit from all angles today. Yes, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. I mean, obviously, there was the matter of losing the game. Yeah, we discussed that in depth on our football podcast out now. Um, well, then there, then there was some more bad news on the Ava Carnero front. Go on. Um, it turns out that uh, well, the Press Association reporting that uh, he is to be the subject of an individual legal claim from the former Chelsea team, Dr. Eva Carnero, in addition to the action she's bringing against the club for constructive dismissal. Uh, Press Association support understands legal papers will be served on Mourinho this week as part of separate but connected claims against him and the club, which means that Mourinho will then have to go to an employment tribunal and testify, unless um, he can settle it out of court. Which could also happen, I suppose. You, as part of the many Mourinho rantings in recent days, he has consistently talked about his. You know, he's asked about Jurgen Klopp. Do you like Jurgen Klopp? Yeah, I really like Jurgen Klopp. I just don't like the way Brendan was dealt with. Brendan is a fellow manager. Brendan shouldn't have been let go. I don't see. I don't. I, I wouldn't be pleased if twenty journalists were let go, or if any of you guys had to finish up. So I don't understand why everyone's so delighted when a football manager loses his job. He's actually he's actually struck quite an interesting point there. But mm. what I would say is, you, you lose a certain amount of sympathy for Mourinho when you think of how he treated Eva Canero. Mm. Uh, we should be clear in saying that he didn't sack her, but she's now looking at, at a constructive dismissal case. And it seemed at the time when he took away her power to essentially fulfil most of her duties that she might have been being backed into a corner there. So yet again with Mourinho, he's, he has the kernel of a point, but his mm. own actions sometimes bet- betray him. Yeah, um, there's also um, some more information. Well, it turns out Guillaume Balaguet is doing a book about Ronaldo, uh, like a biography. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a biography as opposed to... I mean, he did a book about Messi, which seemed like a kind of an authorised biography. I don't know how authorised this one is. But uh, that's out in a couple of days. But he had um, some of the little extracts coming out. So one of them deals with uh, January 2013. So this would be Mourinho's last few months at Real Madrid. Um, and uh, essentially they're winning 2-0 against Valencia in the cup quarterfinal. With 10 minutes remaining, the coach very pointedly told Cristiano Ronaldo to track back. 
He also reprimanded him for hurriedly taking a throw-in that Mesut Ozil was unable to control, allowing Valencia to break and provide the final fright of the match. Uh, Mourinho, whose blood was no longer boiling by the time he reached the dressing room, reminded Cristiano of the reason for the instruction on the pitch. If they get a goal against us, dot, 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 the player, unable to contain his fury, got up from the bench where he was changing and began shouting, After everything I've done for you, this is how you treat me? How dare you say that to me? (laughs) The dressing room turned deadly silent. Mourinho tried to remain calm. I was saying it for the team, because the team needed you to track back. But as he could see, Cristiano had no intention of calming down. He gradually retreated. Soon after, he approached the fort again to resume the conversation with less tension. But Ronaldo fired back angrily. Mourinho wasn't able to contain himself any longer. Just so you know, he shouted for everybody to hear, many think like me here, but don't dare say it. They don't have the balls to tell you. So, uh, wow. uh, Game Balagay fills in the detail. <laughs> yeah. Many of the players who witnessed the scene had demanded that Mourinho, either directly or through the coaching staff, ask Ronaldo to defend more. The situation escalated to the point where Cristiano had to be held back. Some sources say by Casillas, others say by Arbeloa and Kadira, or even Sergio Ramos. <laughs> Nobody's quite sure what happened there. To prevent the pair from coming to blows. So uh, apparently the relationship between them would never be the same again. I would suggest that it would not have been a very good idea for Mourinho to physically come to blows with <laughs> Ronaldo. No. I don't know uh, quite how well uh, that would have worked out. Clear the air fisticuffs uh, might be just what T- take a clear the air needed. take a clear the air beating off a star player <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and far collapse. greater physical specimen collapse sobbing into each other's arms at the end of the fight that's, that's what men do Jim McGuinness has his auto, his memoir out I don't know what is the difference between a memoir and an autobiography I've never fully been able to work that out but I'm looking forward to getting st- you don't have any answer to that um, we can think about it off air if you don't have one on there maybe well I don't I don't know the answer no maybe a memoir is more um, narrowly focused on the work Maybe it's focusing on work, a period of a man, of I think that, life. I think that maybe a memoir, not so much in the case of the work, more in the case of the time scale when it comes to Jim McGuinness's memoir, mm. that it's actually just his time in charge of Donegal. I mean, the chapters there, 2011, 2012, 2013, mm. 2014. So maybe that makes it a memoir, even though, of course, you get a look into his life an, uh, in all parts. An autobiography would be more um, complete, in the sense of the picture tried to present. Like, for instance, Big Sam's autobiography. Uh, well, here we go. There is no detail, no detail, no matter how salacious, left out of Big Sam's autobiography, which I know you're still... Have you already? Have you finished it? No, I haven't, I haven't finished it. I was reading reading a bit of it, though. He's, he's, I was reading the chapter about his childhood. Um, growing up, you know, his dad was the local Bobby. Uh, he he uh, was a harsh disciplinarian uh, who spent most of his time down in the pub. He'd dole out the housekeeping money, then keep the rest for his fags and his booze, says Sam, with uh, surprisingly little bitterness considering the grimness of some of the situations he outlines. Well, I am looking forward to getting through Until Victory Always, a memoir, getting stuck into that this week. This is Jim McGuinness's book written with Keith Duggan. So uh, I'm I'm fairly sure this book is going to be good. Although one critic doesn't seem too impressed. Current Donegal manager Rory Gallagher. McGuinness Mm. details the reasons behind the removal of Gallagher from his own management team in 2013. And the current Donegal boss, not happy. He says, I'm disappointed Jim has chosen to comment on the breakup of the management team at this point. The players, management and backroom team had a very clear understanding that what had happened within the group remained within the group. Following my departure, I did not comment on the matter as this would have been unfair in the players and the new management team whose focus was on the year ahead. 
Yeah, so I mean, what you're looking at here is a, a, a straight shootout between the current Donegal senior football manager and their greatest ever uh, senior football manager, uh, the man who preceded uh, the current man in the job. So uh, it's a little bit of a perfect storm, all right, from that point of view. I mean, you, we, we uh, in the midst of all this uh, kind of backbiting, uh, we must remember that the Jim McGuinness Rory Gallagher combo was wildly successful. Um, reinvented the game uh, effectively, uh, managed to make us all look at Gaelic football a little differently, and won in All Ireland with a team that just two years before had been knocked out almost in disgrace of the championship by Armagh in Cross McLean in a pretty low profile game. So, uh, what you're looking at here is without doubt two of the sharpest minds in Gaelic football at the moment uh, who had worked together now um, kind of slagging each other off in uh, in public so you know great, great for us great for us <laughs> so amazing great for us as sports fans yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot to talk about here I'm not sure how good it is for, for Donegal for the two boys but we'll chat about that in, uh, very shortly indeed good news Simon New Zealand may have won the World Cup but it's all downhill from here because my theory is their greatest All Blacks ever. That's not even my theory. Steve Hansen says Richie McCaw is the greatest All Black we've ever had and Dan Carrier is a close second. So how can they possibly recover from this blow in future World Cups? Do you actually believe that, by the way? Believe that they what? Won't, that they won't replace these players. Um, Just that in their 100-odd year history or so, they've never struggled at any point to replace any of their Steve players. Steve Hansen, I think McCaw is the greatest All Black we've ever had and Dan is a close second. I'll repeat his... Nine there. They don't need somebody as good as McCaw and Carter. They may well find them. Bowden Barrett, for example, every time he comes on, I think he's going to be the next out half. Scores a try, <laughs> plays brilliantly, yeah. looks nerve-free. Um, Sam Kane's coming in for Richie McCaw. You might find a year he's a better player than McCaw was towards the end of his career. Um, I honestly don't think it's an issue. I know it's we're possibly talking about t- in, in McCaw and Carter, the two greatest players of all time. Everybody seems to agree on that. I yeah. would agree with that. Um, but I still think they'll get a guy close enough that they'll keep winning all their games. If they continue to win World Cups in the way they did this time, I think we'd all be happy enough, in fairness. We were talking about there not being a great World Cup final before now. I think this certainly touched on greatness this match, and that was partly because of Australia's ability to somehow cling in the game when it looked like it was all over there. You know, it's just the way they actually approached the game, the way they didn't do what we had feared they might. And Matt well, we know for might. certain that the Australian defence is... It might be the best defence in the World Cup. We saw what they did against Wales when they were down to 13 men, wasn't it? Um, how just every other team, Argentina, just couldn't find a hole in it. Um, so we know that this wasn't New Zealand just punching holes against France or whoever it might be. To do that in a World Cup final, yeah. to, to, for nerves not to be a factor in a World Cup final is bonkers. We'll talk World Cup final with Shane Horgan in a little while. But first, Michael Foley, the Sunday Times. Michael, to talk about this breakup. Well, we, the breakup happened a couple of years ago, but the explanation of what has gone on between Jim McGuinness and Rory Gallagher, current Donegal manager, does it make more sense to you now why that duo did actually break up in the first place? Yeah, well, I, mean, I suppose even at the time when, when they were going through the breakup or coming up towards the breakup, you kind of got a sense that you know, this this was going to uh, this is going to unfold this way, and then after that, obviously at the time, neither neither side really wanted to get into it. And once uh, and you know, once Rory actually took the job, then last year or this year, I should say, um, you know, you were going to be waiting another little while for it to kind of unfold in itself. But yeah, I mean, what you're what you're reading in uh, Jim McGuinness's book and 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 the little bits and pieces in Rory Cavanagh's book is pretty much paints a paints a picture, I suppose, really of two two people who came together for very distinct reasons 
in the sense that, like, McGuinness obviously wanted somebody really, really good alongside him. Rory Gallagher needed a platform to start off his kind of managerial career. It kind of worked for both of them. I mean, they, I mean, they would be quite close in age. They would have knocked around uh, the inter-county scene at the same time, but they wouldn't have necessarily been close at all before they got together in the Donegal job. So it was kind of very much for mutual benefit when they got together in the first place. And, uh, you know, even obviously when they were winning the All-Ireland and that you had these kind of stories and, and McGuinness talks about in the book, even about, you know, being on the phone for hours on end and so on and so forth. But at all times, I think it's safe to say it was a very sort of, uh, it was a very professional relationship and they both knew exactly what they were getting out of the arrangement. Um, so to kind of see it, to see it kind of, I suppose, unravel the way it did, kind of fell really into sort of a pattern of, of things that happen for some reason, actually, with Ulster Counties. Uh, after after they make breakthroughs and win all Ireland and things like that, um, it's what uh, Mickey Hart and Pat Riley before him called the disease of me. That one one side of the managerial team feel that the other side is maybe either a getting too big for their boots or two or b I should say is having too much of an influence or too much of a say in in how the team is actually evolving and so on. So there was a a, a bit of all that on. Yeah. Kind of, of all that happening here, you know? Yeah, there's quite a bit happening. When you boil it down, when you look at it, according to McGuinness's take on things, it seems as though there were two chief issues that he had with Gallagher in that last season, and one was a, maybe more of a long-running theme, and that was those conversations you talk about had gone from being, the way McGuinness paints them originally, the two guys would listen to each other, even though McGuinness was number one, he would often be swayed by Gallagher, or else Gallagher would be swayed by him. And after all those hours talking tactics, talking team selection, they'd ultimately get to a point where they'd compromise and they'd come up with something. That, according to McGuinness, had started to change, and Gallagher didn't want to hear McGuinness' side of things. Gallagher was trying to ram his own points home. And as a sort of full stop on all that, just before the game against Mayo, the quarterfinal in 2013, I mean, we remember this happening. It was Kavanaugh gave an interview to the Irish News and he spoke about Mayo and Monaghan being in collusion to try to beat Donegal. I mentioned that, uh, I thought I'm using the word softening up, but that there was sort of this general sense that uh, it's that a couple of teams were, were working together to try to topple Donegal. And it seemed at the time, everyone assumed, certainly I assumed, that, well, I mean, Kavanaugh wouldn't be saying this without... Gallagher, sorry. Okay, yeah. Gallagher, sorry, yeah. yeah. Gallagher wouldn't be saying this without um, McGuinness giving the say-so and for, without this being what the management think and some sort of clever tactical ploy. It turns out now that that very much wasn't the case. No, and I mean, even at the time, I, again, I can remember when, when, the, when, the, when the breakup happened, like, you were kind of hearing that, you know, he had been pulled up over it. I mean, McGuinness, and again, he goes through the book, like, he went and he went and inquired. I mean, the, the excuse, I think, that Rory had or the reasoning Rory had was that it was an off-the-record conversation with the journalist. Uh, McGuinness went and had a conversation with the journalist in question. The journalist said, no, it wasn't off the record at all. Um, and there shouldn't have been any confusion about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, again, it comes back to that basic point like that, you know, in, in that managerial team, you had a little bit of sort of, you know, you had McGuinness obviously bring an awful lot to the table. I mean, it goes without saying both and brought a lot to the table. But, you know, you had McGuinness sort of doing the, I suppose, the Conor McGregor bit kind of going, this is what's going to happen. And this is, you know, we're going to win by this much. And it's, it's, it's all almost preordained and predestined. But it was preordained and predestined largely because of the amount of work and the amount of stuff that Rory brought to the table in terms of kind of analysis of the opposition, his knowledge of players elsewhere. I mean, the players would have gone on repeatedly over those years about the level, and still now, um, about the level of knowledge and detail that Rory would bring in terms of what the team should expect when they go out to play a team and, and mark individuals and so on and so forth. So those two things kind of combined together uh, when you had McGuinness and Gallagher together. But 
by the time, I suppose. And so, you know, by extension, Rory's always going to have his own opinions on things and going to have very strong opinions on him. But, you know, sometimes, you know, it's kind of the old too many, too, too many chiefs and not, and not enough Indians sort of situation. So it was always, in my head anyway, it was always going to come to a point where, you know, one of them was going to have to move along. You know, there was just, there were just too, they were just too combustible a pair um, to kind of be together for a long, a long stretch, you know, that sort of way. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, to hear you talk about that number one, number two dynamic, because really what you're saying is that you need to have a guy, and again, we're talking about much more than a selector here, that Gallagher was obviously much more of a, much more than uh, just a selector on this team. He had a real input into how the team was prepared and how the team was picked and how they went out and played. So really what you're saying is this can either only last for a year or two years before the number two realise or th- begins to think, right, well, I'm not getting the respect that I deserve. Uh, this is a 50-50 split. And the manager is saying, well, you know, I'm number one for a reason. One comes before two. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And I'm just, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear this, even through the prism of, right, well, Dolo Cusack and Davy Fitzgerald are just about to, to uh, get together in the Clare Hurling team. Are we idiots to think that this can ever work? Well, it can, you see... <laughs> or can it, work it's, for it's, like, can it work for like a year or two and then yeah, it just yeah, blows like, up in everyone's it, face? It's like a lot of things in life, you know. If you know what you're getting into before you get into it and, and, and the situation is made perfectly clear to you, well, then off you go. And in this, and in this scenario with McGuinness and Gallagher, um, McGuinness, like, and the, the thing is well to keep in mind is that you've got two guys coming from very similar backgrounds in the sense that they both played for counties that, that kind of didn't really, didn't really match the ambition that the individuals themselves would have had. And at the same time, they both would have played with, say, college level and so on with teams who did have the ambition that they had. So they knew, both of them knew what it took to be winners, but they'd also played with counties who didn't know what it took to be winners. So they were both of like mind in that sense, starting out with Donegal. So, you know, there was there was a certain symbiosis there in the sense that they could work together on that basis, you know. But it was always going to be the case like that Rory, like Rory has a fantastic football mind, you know. Um, he's got fantastic depth of knowledge, detail. He's excellent on the line, all that sort of stuff, all the stuff that you need to be a number one. But some people need to be a number two for a little while just to even to get their get their profile up get their name out there and so on and so forth so it was a it was a very good situation for Rory to go into as a number two but at the same time he was a very visible number two and I mean even like before I remember doing the piece the week before the Ireland final about Gallagher and McGuinness and it was very much it was very much a two-headed beast like you know what I mean it wasn't you, you didn't I never really saw Gallagher in the way that McGuinness saw Gallagher I would have seen him as a one and a half you know um but again, as I say, that scenario, you know, it doesn't, it works for a finite amount of times, you say, you know, it's not going to work the whole way. Um, at some point, there's going to be a parting of the ways. And it usually, as, and you know, Rory Kavanagh in his book actually gives some, uh, you know, it, it gives a very interesting insight in the context of, of McGuinness's book now, in the sense that, you know, the players had a huge amount of respect for, for Gallagher. Um, but there was, you know, during 2013, they could see it like that. There was, that there was a, a a division had had occurred, and that there was a gap between there was a gap in the management, if you like, you know. Um, and 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 in the end of it, I mean, Rory Kavanagh, you know, he said he was not surprised at all at how McGuinness got got rid of Gallagher, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, completely I, cutthroat, but you know, absolutely, you know, professional and you know, ruthless in everything he did, you know. It did seem to that the relationship, obviously, we. we talked about how it changed and the reasons beside it. I was really struck, probably the 
passage of this that uh, made the biggest impact on me reading it was, and the one that I was most surprised with, was how surprised McGuinness seemed to be that Gallagher wasn't really willing to accept this new dynamic. He says, I decided that if we were to continue, I had to assume absolute control. There would be no more lengthy debates or joint decisions. When I met him, he was hesitant about the proposal. He asked me if I could think, if he could think about it. I said to him, I didn't know why he needed to think about anything. He hadn't had to think about it when I asked him in two years ago when nobody knew who he was as a coach. So why now? I mean, it seems yeah. pretty clear why now, but that's, that's quite an insight into McGuinness's tunnel-visioned way of thinking. Well, it's, I think it's an insight into how he sees that scenario. Yeah, the, 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 the tunnel vision. But it's, it's also, if you read it, he's not giving Gallagher any way out here, like, you know? Hmm. I mean, he's basically, I mean, saying that to a guy, you're basically saying, you're... It, there's no way back here. Even if you say, oh, I, you know, he's not even giving him the opportunity really to, uh, I mean, of course, of course Gallagher's going to take a second to think about it. Of course you would, given the role he had had up to that point. So, I mean, McGinnis throwing that back in his face is basically going, I don't care what you've done up to this point. Uh, or at least outwardly, I'm going to give the impression that I don't care what you've done up to this point because we are done here. It's all over. It's done. So whatever way you want to process it, good luck to you. I'm off with the team and, you know, we've, we've, we've done our thing. But, um, you know, I mean, you see you, you see examples of this over the years. Like, I mean, the same, a similar, not the same, but a similar scenario unfolded with Tyrone back in 04 when you had Paddy Talley as, as the team trainer who had had a massive influence on Tyrone winning the All-Ireland in 03. But by the end of 04, Mickey Hart had just decided that Paddy, Paddy's, inf- or Paddy's view of his own opinion and Paddy's view of, of his influence on the team had become too much. And they had a very similar conversation um, to McGuinness and Gallagher, <coughs> excuse me, and that was the end of him. Um, so I mean, you know, it's 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 an interesting dynamic. Maybe it's something as well that comes from teams that don't know success for very long, and uh, suddenly when they have it, you know, everybody knows how to win an All Ireland. Then this is exactly the kind of stuff we we want to read in a book, personally. Uh, and I think all of us around here like to read a good sports book. Uh, and <laughs> this does no harm, I would say, either for the publicity around it, the fact that Gallagher has actually come out and and defended his position and actually had a go at McGuinness for speaking about this. Gallagher's basic point is, look, I was under the impression that none of us were ever going to talk about what happened there and now he's gone and done it. Is Gallagher within his rights to make that statement and to be disappointed? Of course he is, free, free, free country. Like, I mean, it kind of, and of course it drags us right back into the whole Kevin Cassidy saga as well. And, you know, okay, well, it was okay for, uh, it's okay for Jim now, now that he's out of it, to breach the terms of whatever written agreement they had or whatever that was all about. Uh, but it's, it wasn't okay for Kevin Cassidy uh, to speak at the time at the end of a season about it, you know. So it's a whole, it, it kind of brings you back to the whole sort of um, how far do you go uh, in terms of sort of, you know, what people can say, wh- where 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 the line is. I mean, my own personal view is that people should be, you know, at the end of the day, guys guys live in a bubble like in the GA sometimes. But at the end of the day, it's an amateur sport and guys can talk about whatever the hell they want. And it's the lifeblood of the whole thing is, you know, is a lot of, because there's so few matches and because there's so few legitimate games anymore, half of it is, is, is yeah, talking about what's coming up. Especially at this time of year. Yeah, half is uh, probably <laughs> a pessimistic outlook, really, to be honest, but yeah. You know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's good. It's good. And I mean, look at, um, Gallagher is absolutely within his right. Given, given the role he had in, in helping Donegal win that All-Ireland, um, I, th- I think he's perfectly within his rights to express himself the way he has. Yeah, by the same token, McGuinness is entitled to look at it the way he does too. It, you know, it's a, it's, but it's a, it's sort of, it's not a new scenario to see in a management team yeah. that uh, that that contains these kind of personalities and this kind of quality and talent as well. Uh, to see them uh, kind of come apart at the scenes like this and 
and not be speaking for however long, two years or whatever he said it was. All right, we'll see what happens with Donald Logue and Davey Fitz there. <laughs> one, yeah. yeah, it'll be an interesting one. Listen, Michael, brilliant. Thanks a million. No problem. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clive Woodward, statisticians, dietitians. And as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Yeah, it's a great point by Michael Kieran that the there is a a lot of talk. There aren't very many games played in this sport mm. at the very top level. I know there's championship matches, club championship matches going on around the country at the weekend, but at the top intercounty level, there are large barren periods for the year, so we have what? to fill it with this talk. Why can't we just focus on the games? Because for nine months <laughs> of the year, uh, there are games being played aren't really that important to a majority of the people in the association. So um, yeah, no, I I for one welcome this. I mean, I think uh, there's probably a lot that other sports could learn from this lesson. I mean, imagine how much more fun we'd have with Mourinho if there wasn't any football getting in the way. Just a three-month season and then talk about Jose Mourinho for nine months. Yeah, I mean, we could really, you know, we could really cover him, you know, instead of this, you know, pretty pretty facile, you know, coverage of Jose Mourinho. We're just not talking half enough about Jose Mourinho is what I'm trying to say. Speaking of which... That's... Yeah... (laughs) They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you I don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six I'd say it to you, but I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them up with. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? Well, Alan, as you suggested, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Jose Mourinho and how the walls continue to close in on him, at least the imaginary ones in his head, um, uh, which are, which I suppose are no less real from his point of view. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about uh, Manchester United and their problems scoring goals or even shooting at goal and whether that has to do with um, the players who are trying to do it or the... Um, philosophy to which the players are expected to adhere. We've been talking about the good vibes around New Zealand's win on Saturday against Australia. You saw the Sonny Bill Williams postscript to the match, did you? Did oh, yeah. Can you describe what happened for people who didn't see this? Um, well, a, a skinny little kid ran out from the um, stand in an attempt to, attempt to sort of uh, join in with the All Blacks as they did their lap of honour. And uh, as Sonny Bill Williams put it, got absolutely smoked by the security guard who who just leveled him, properly Boris Johnson them, like in a real poof, um, right at the feet of Sonny Bill Williams, who actually sort of jumped back uh, from this collision uh, with a slightly dainty backstep. You know, he was like, oh, uh, and then uh, when he saw this, he picked a guy. He said, well, if it had been a you know little brother or a cousin, I would have given that security guard a hiding. As it was, I just... Uh, decided to so he kind of picked him up and you know gave him a hug and brought him back then to his seat his old lady as he said and get, then decided to give him his world cup medal as well just to just to make yeah, him feel amazing. better yeah so there was a total hero worship from the kid there was a lot of hugging going on a lovely scene uh, Shane Horgan is ready to talk about this Shane the, the game itself the, even that moment I suppose it was after the game itself but after the flowing rugby that New Zealand managed to implement during the game. Dan Carter performing to the level he did, scoring that drop goal. And just a sense of fun about uh, watching it from a neutral point of view. It seemed to be a more popular win than in 2011. Did you enjoy it more? 
Um, I did, yeah. I think, yeah, and I think it was more enjoyable for New Zealand people as well. I um, spoke to a work colleague of mine in Sky, and he, he really said he he had no enjoyment apart from the final whistle of the final in 2011. Um, but this one, he did. I think um, they saw that the way they were playing through the tournament, they had a, a full, pretty much a full hand uh, to choose from. And very early on the game, uh, New Zealand were controlling it. Huge hits from the opening whistle, uh, which I think really shocked Australia. And apart from a couple of periods, and one in particular, where they were down, where New Zealand were down to 14 men, they seemed to control the, the match. And at very specific times, uh, New Zealand answered uh, the challenge of Australia. That was really important. And actually, I think in those key periods, it was... Largely, Dan Carter was the one who who stepped up and made um, a significant difference. Yeah, a 10 out of 10 performance, according to the Sunday Times. I'm sure you're, as a former player, you're a massive fan of these player ratings. Uh, they, they well, go on. Always the most accurate way of, <laughs> yeah. of rating a player. Exactly. done uh, by one, one, person one person across 15 players, or 30 50, players, yeah, yeah, yeah. in uh, 10 minutes after the game. In this case, but, 10 out of 10? Well, listen, he, he, you know, if you're going to judge it on that, he, he was just a remarkable performance. Um, and there was three key points for me that I, I really remember. Um, the, the drop goal, of course, was, was magnificent. Um, not in a position to take a drop goal, but uh, moved onto his left foot beautifully. And um, like a snap drop goal that went over the black spot from 41 metres out. It was incredible just when they needed it, when Australia were getting a bit of hope. Then there was that remarkable... Um, a penalty kick, which was you know really not quite in Carter's range. You know it was just around halfway. It was a really long kick, and he never looked like missing it. And you felt the confidence. You could see the adrenaline was going. Again, that was another nail in the coffin um, for the Australians and a real uh, hope sapper. And then there was another kick, and I'm not sure if you remember it, but it was. Um, when New Zealand were again under pressure and Australia were coming back and they were within one score in the second half and he cleared a ball um, out of, with a, with a out-of-hand punt that yeah. must have gone about yeah. 50 metres and it wasn't just a kick but you saw the camera um, zoned in on him and you could see him you know, really energising all the other players screaming encouragement uh, screaming direction uh, with huge passion as well you thought yeah that's it which and he never does about, Shane which he never does really he's normally well, I, I just, does he not I, I, I wasn't you know I was, I was just maybe I, I was because I haven't noticed it before but it was, it was that was just for me he was really it wasn't you're right you know he's the cool calm collected guy isn't he and that time it was more just unbridled passion I think it was for a second it was almost a fear from him going hang on a second there's actually a chance that we mightn't win this and he was almost trying to to shake the other players um, into into some sort of action, and he did. And New Zealand seemed to play it, and Carter typified that without any nerves. I mean, pressure didn't seem to play a factor in a World Cup final, which is bad news for everybody else. Yeah, it, it was, um, and it was that was demonstrated by um, his passing throughout the game was so fluid. Um, and we talk about Sexton's passing and the way he's constantly moving forward, but the composure in his game and the composure right throughout the New Zealand um, uh, team's game. Uh, that first try, I know there was it was a bad call by the Australian defence, but what happened after when they reacted to the bad decision in defence was just all about beautiful uh, composure and, and those key moments. That drop kick was just incredible. It just looked so natural. It looked like the thing to do. He was under incredible pressure. 
pressure. The pass wasn't quite right, so he just ducked inside, still quite flat to the line, and then hit 41-metre drop call in a World Cup final. And I was really interested in listening to the podcast last week and what you know you yourself and Shane Jennings were talking about with regard to you know, this potentially being a, a problem for the rest of the teams in the world going forward. And you think, you know, if they can play a World Cup that controlled, a World Cup final that controlled and that at ease, even losing some of the stellar names that they are, um, it doesn't bode well for everybody else. Yeah, well, Simon reckoned it's going to be 10 in a row now for New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty true. Uh, how much of it, surely those guys retiring, though, will have some sort of an impact? No, McCall, Carter, Nanu, Conrad Smith, Mialamu. Okay, a couple of them were were, you know, probably past their sell by date, but Carter played as well as he's ever played for New Zealand. Well, no, I think they do have a huge impact. I, you know, that said, and New Zealand do have um, a conveyor belt of brilliant players, and and we saw some young up and coming players as well um, that are going to uh, you know be the leaders, and maybe not in those positions, but they're going to be leaders as well. Carter it will be a big loss because he's a generational player. Um, Richie McCaw is is something else. He's he just is a man not of this world. He just seems such a tough individual who does the right thing so uh, often and I was speaking to Alan Quinlan um, before the Leinster game yesterday and he was saying he sort of did a little player watch himself and what McCall was doing um, during that that, uh, final and he said he was just like perpetual motion, he did not stop he'd make a tackle, he's up he's pointing out, he's getting in the line uh, he's instructing others he's bouncing off the ground and up again he's you know slowing down the ball he's stealing, he just didn't stop and that's why he's, you know, he's just something out of this world and a, a tougher man. I, I just, I don't think has ever played the game. But you, you think they can be replaced? That New Zealand have systems in place that, even with that leadership gone, by the time say the Lions tour rolls around in a couple of years, they'll be all right. Well, you know, look at the teams that New Zealand have had over the years, and with the exception, possibly, well, I don't think that the team in 1991, you know, wasn't good enough to win a World Cup. Um, the team possibly in um, the 2003, you know, but still they were, you know, in a shout. Every other team uh, along the way was probably the best team in the world going into the World Cup, and you know there was a there was a almost a freak result, or and there was that problem that they had with, um, you know, with the. Um, demands of being an all-black team and only having won the one World Cup. Now, those things have gone, and those players, but the, those quality of players have been there through all those teams. And you look at some of the teams, look at the, 90, the 95 team um, in South Africa, how good that was. 2007 team, how good that was. Um, so, you know, they constantly produce players. Yes, they've had this incredible generation of some remarkable players, and, and Nanu was just incredible. Like, he's a better player now than he's ever been. Um, but there is just a, a, a non-stop conveyor belt of good players. Um, and we will see definitely um, legends of, of rugby come into different positions. And, you know, that's just what New Zealand do. You said there, Shane, earlier on that the, you felt Australia were shocked by the early hits from New Zealand, which I'm a bit surprised by. I would have thought that they'd be ready for that exact, <laughs> that exact approach. Yeah, you know, maybe you're ready, but when it actually happens... 
um, I thought New Zealand just came out really, really fast. And there was about five hits in a row in the first two minutes where I gasped. I went, you know, you just exhale. And so if I'm exhaling, watching it, I can only imagine what's going on if you're actually feeling the, the impact of those hits. And, you know, being aware or, you know, be, knowing that New Zealand are going to be firing um, is fine. But the actual impact of, of what they're doing it's you know it is shocking and it's hard to it's hard to um, react to because you know what a World Cup final it may not have been you know you may have never felt intensity like that um, that coupled with the pressures that go um, that uh, that Australia were also dealing with um, given that the, given they were in a World Cup final and it's a position they certainly didn't expect to be in a year's time then I think there was two huge things that um, prevented Australia from, you know, playing as well as they could. And I think the, the loss of um, Kane was a, a huge blow. And um, also um, then when Gitto went off as well, um, that was that was crucial. And also, they got the rub of the green as well, New Zealand. I think the forward pass that was thrown... Um, that wasn't um, that wasn't called was was blatant and led to three points and that was there was a big swing at that point as well. Check uh, you mentioned Checker's ability last week to communicate publicly brilliantly over the last few weeks, keeping a lid on expectations while simultaneously believing you think that they they could and possibly would win this World Cup. With that in mind, he was saying afterwards, look, this is the start of something. He was quite bullish in that sense that that they've only really begun there. Will he? be able to be philosophical do you think or will he be torn to shreds about the defeat uh, he'll be cut up I think he'll be absolutely cut up because um, he believed that they were going to win that World Cup I'm absolutely convinced of that and as it went on I think he believed it more and more um, I don't think uh, Cheka lies to his players when he says that uh, you know the belief he has in them as individuals I don't think it's just done uh, to keep them happy I think he, he generally you know sees them he, he you know he cut a lot of players in that team he um, he rejuvenated a lot of players in that team so his belief was was honest and I think when you have that uh, belief in your players and you see what they've done through this World Cup and um, the sort of level they played at and how they've, they've gelled and how they've grown as individuals as well. Um, I think that it, it's really, you do believe they're going to win and it's very difficult then um, when they don't. Shane, it probably was the best two teams in the final and yet New Zealand looked so dominant for most parts of it. Do you see the bigger issue for the rest of the world catching up with New Zealand? Is it bridging the, the talent gap or is it tactics that has them so far ahead? Um. I don't think, uh, I know it's been stated before, I don't think New Zealand uh, reinvent the wheel with tactics. Um, I don't think they're, they're um, massive innovators. What they do do is they do an incredible amount of work on the opposition um, and they have a one dedicated, or at least one member of staff that's dedicated um, to um, the opposition at, you know, at all times, not just for, during a World Cup. So they're doing um, months and years in advance of uh, analysis on the opposition and, and where their their uh, flaws are and where they can be exploited. So, you know, they have a they do have an, a bottom bottomless a pit of money for um, the All Blacks. There's no expense to go spare. They said this is the most prepared All Blacks team, um, and that's one of the aspects that they have, uh, which is which is phenomenal. But I think what I, I what most impressed me and what I've most seen from this World Cup, apart from you know a couple of standout talents, what they have. Is um, their um, their composure, uh, their skill, their their skill level, uh, 
which has you know it's a it's a it's something that's drained in them from a very uh, very early age but also um the uh, their ability to keep composure when they get the ball and i thought that first try was a perfect example of players keeping their composure and doing exactly the right decision and passing the ball ex- at exactly the right moment um and until teams um, i think you know raise their skill level individual skill level of players and um, and you know think it's going to have to think uh, tactically as well and think of a plan to beat them um, it's going to be difficult but you know they're not they're not unbeatable um, and as you say there might be a little bit of a a, a gap here for a couple of years where maybe um, you can take a couple of shots at them where they're they're missing some of their more senior players they're losing hundreds literally literally hundreds of caps um, after this World Cup. Just last one, Shane. The tournament as a whole was obviously a huge success in pretty every, pretty much every way that you can measure. And it's one of the few tournaments in world sports, certainly the biggest tournament that Ireland could possibly hope to host. We're in the bidding for 2023. We're obviously never going to get a soccer World Cup or an Olympic Games. So a rugby World Cup would be phenomenal, I think. I'm kind of, you're kind of envious looking over at England getting to host this tournament when they've probably got enough going on there already. Do you think it possibly can happen in 2023? It can possibly happen. I think there's elements of what's gone on, what has gone on in this World Cup that may make it more difficult for Ireland to host because I think we've seen um, the competition hit a new level with regards to ticket sales and the amount of supporters through the gate. The the cost of those tickets, like tickets, were very very expensive for all yeah. these games, um, hugely expensive, um, mostly sell out. So we've had more people through the gates. Um, of World Cups than ever before. Ireland just doesn't have um, that sort of uh, stadia. Um, will they have enough um, high net worth individuals, or you know, will the will the man on the street be willing to pay the amount um, that they'd have to charge for World Cup tickets based on what they've done in um, England this year? Uh, that's another concern. Um, and will the will the world rugby go? We're just going to go for a country. We're going to try and find a country that has bigger stadia with a, a base that's more likely uh, to pay more money because um, that is you know that's going to be a big factor. I do think what Ireland does have is something that maybe the UK uh, doesn't have. Um, we would take embrace the tournament entirely. Mm. And I found that that hasn't happened uh, in London because it's just too big. There's too many things going on. Uh, there's NFL has gone on here that was highly promoted. Um, and that was, you know, on the, the streets were dressed with that. Uh, football is just so massive here. You could not put off the back page and uh, never mind get rugby onto the front page. Um, so I think that is something that England, that London certainly couldn't deliver. I know it was sort of different in the more provincial uh, towns where stuff was held. But uh, I think that if Ireland won a World Cup, you'd be sure almost everybody in the country would um, would be participating in, in some way. And I think that would hold a really special, uh, make a really special World Cup. So um, hopefully, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these things, money wins out. But uh, hopefully it wouldn't just be money because I think Ireland would throw one hell of a party and it would organise it brilliantly as well. Well. Yeah, Shane, great stuff throughout the tournament. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. Thanks, lads. That could be the one element of this that we get to cling to in terms of our hopes of actually hosting this World Cup in 2023 that, as Shane says, we will embrace it fully. It'll be, it'll be the thing happening in the event in Ireland for those six weeks. He said that London didn't really... It just it can't have a sustained impact in a city like London. And even in Cardiff, we were over there. Okay, by match day, it was it was fairly apparent there was a game on. But in the couple of days leading up to it, bar a massive rugby ball, 
stuck into the side of the castle in Cardiff. <laughs> I don't, there wasn't much of a sense of this great tournament happening. No, it felt Sorry, like they were hosting another Six Nations game. Sorry, Simon, just to, that, that rugby ball, that was actually just an effect. They didn't actually damage the walls. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Owen, but they didn't actually... How else did they get the... No, the, no, sorry. But they, the brickwork and the... Oh, God. I should, I should have said it to him at the time. I, saw, I know was, he probably gets that. That's fine. He won't bring this up on air or no. anything. <laughs> and the ticket prices, by the way, we, we, we went to the game on the Sunday. The ticket I ended up getting was a £250 sterling ticket. Got it for £100 off a nice French gentleman before the game. A clearly overconfident... French supporter, mm. so I milked him for £150. <laughs> and this is the day after he'd watch his team ship yeah, 60 points. Exactly, yeah. I got there. Uh, he still We're seemed, all taking a bath this weekend, why not? He still seemed confident in himself, you know, these French people sometimes are. But he, we, the view I had was okay. Uh, I mean, it was okay for the money I paid. It wouldn't have been that okay for the money I should have paid. Uh, there was a slightly... It was difficult to see in one corner of the stadium. Luckily, nothing had happened in that corner. Argentina did all the damage in front of me, so I got to see all the pain that was inflicted on us. But they are expensive, and that is a point. Could we realistically be charging whatever the exchange rate would be at the time, over 300 euro or around 300 euro, whatever it is, for tickets to a game in which not Ireland aren't supporting either team? Don't know if they, how well they'd sell. Yeah, I which think, means you might have to lower prices slightly, which means not enough money, not as much yeah, money for I everybody. think ticket prices will not be a factor that the people who decide who the World Cup goes to will factor in too much. But it shouldn't be something that's way down the list. And I think a massive factor is the fact that Ireland would embrace it and it would feel like the whole country was involved. It was part of what... like I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who've gone to New Zealand and just didn't really enjoy it because they said the locals were quite dour and an unexciting place. And it was the exact opposite during the World Cup. And the, they probably will be like us in that it feels like it's enclosed. Uh, we're an island... Um, and I think even I think the other sporting communities would get behind it. Maybe maybe that's being a little no, too yeah, naive, but oh, well, I mean, the fact that GA have backed it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think yeah. I don't think there would be any. Um, I mean, what you're doing effectively is if the, if you're using the GA grounds, then you're going to GA strongholds, and I don't think there'd be any fear that GA people would be standoffish at all. Really, what what the GA are getting is massive upgrades to loads of their grants for very little uh, actual cash outlay by the GA itself. So, I mean, uh, the GA would be, you know, they would be uh, rolling out the red carpet for the Rugby World Cup if it, if it eventually came. I think the, the ticket prices thing is, I mean, what you actually have to do is find a million people to go through the, the gates here. So what you're effectively asking is maybe, you know, like 100,000 people to go 10 times. You know, I mean, that's that's how the... You know, if you have real and enthusiastic supporters, that's what's going to happen. That's that does put a strain on people's people's. Finances. I think if the World Cup's in Ireland, almost every person will try to get to one game, whether it's in Dublin or wherever. You also, it, it is an attractive place. You know, it's people, not coming back. You're, yeah. If you're any sort of a sports fan, it is an attractive place for people to come in. That a lot of no more than they do in London. A lot of New Zealanders and South Africans, Australians mm. come over and m- make their three week holiday out of it, and might basically might come for one game in Dublin and then go travelling around Europe, yeah. which you would hope would be a yeah. Game. And the the but the the key point to make as well is that there's no. I don't think there's a whole lot of point in waiting for the Australian or New Zealand invasion to come in. I mean, yeah. the, if people are go- if these grounds are going to be full, they're going to be full of Irish people. The, this idea of, you know, 35,000, 40,000 New Zealanders coming, it's just going to happen. I mean, you heard the World Cup final, swing low, sweet chariot, like on two separate occasions, once in the first half, once in the second half. You know, like that's, that's who was in the ground. English people were in the ground, not Australians or New Zealanders. 
I mean, the ground was 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 filled by English people, and that's you have to remember that. Also, it might help us actually get to a semi-final if we manage to host the tournament for once. There's a little bit of news on Paul O'Connell's injury, Simon. Well, the news is he might miss this whole season. I think we all, the second it happened, we all thought that. And then the RFU waited a little while before announcing whether he was even out of the next game when he clearly was. But um, it's just, uh, he seems like the sort of person who would deal quite badly with what's happening at the moment, which is he literally can't tie his own shoelaces. He's properly laid up, as in just lying on his back, on his back yeah. for day day after day. Nobody he, wants to be in that position. He, right? Yeah, he can't do the basics of life, um, which when you looked at him three weeks ago, throwing humans out of his way... <laughs> We spoke, about Jim McGin- we spoke about Jim McGuinness, his book, Creating Shockwaves. Guillaume Balaguer's book, Creating Shockwaves, Murph. Mm. And you've got another controversial autobiography you want to mention. Yes. Uh, outspoken caddy, Steve Williams. I think oh, that's, Steve I think Williams. That's, that's going to be uh, you know, the first lines of his obituary. Outspoken <laughs> caddy, Steve Williams, has died. But uh, he's written a book, and uh, uh, it's called Out of the Rough, uh, written with journalist Michael Donaldson. And uh, he has another blaster to it. Uh, Tiger Woods, uh, w- one part of their working environment, of their uh, work relationship in particular, really annoyed him. Go on. One thing that really pissed me off was how he would flippantly toss a club in the general direction of the bag, expecting me to go over and pick it up. I felt uneasy about bending down to pick up his discarded club. It was like I was his slave. <laughs> Another part of the job was where he asked me to carry the bag of clubs for 18 holes, <laughs> often, sometimes, Twice in one day. Because I know what a caddy does. That's basically what I was adding that joke yeah, in the, the second, second part. part was, uh, not in quotation marks. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, he didn't actually complain about that. <laughs> he did complain about the first uh, part. The, the, Having to pick up the golf clubs. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't really understand why exactly. I mean, that part of it in particular. I mean, if, did, does, did he expect Tiger Woods to go back, clean the club head, and then pop it back? That's for you, Steve. How, no, many, you how many joining me in the green? That'll yeah. be great. How many majors has Tiger won since Steve Williams? Absolutely none. Steve Williams, there I'm sure, go. is eager to tell you that. He's all but one of Tiger's majors or with Steve Williams on the back. Lots of great stuff in the football podcast, which is out now. A lot of Jose Mourinho talk in particular. Thanks very much, Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks Simon. Thanks, 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 Thanks great. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.